0: Hi, Mets fans. Welcome back to Amazing Avenue Audio, the show. My name is Brian. With me, as always, is Chris. We are here, um, you know, we're actually recording this after a Mets win, which is the first time that's happened in a minute. But the Mets are on the West Coast. The Mets are not playing all that well. Although I have to say, they have not been blown out by the Dodgers and Giants every night, as I think maybe some of us feared that they would be. Um, And, you know, it's starting to get harder to look at the rest of the season and see a clear-cut path to the playoffs. I'm not saying it's not possible, but it certainly is possible but it's getting a little bit trickier to see that path so with all that said, what is your level of of optimism what is your level of comfort with the way the Mets are constructed as of right now
1: um not good <laughs> <laughs> I don't know it's uh, mathematically they're not that far gone but i the the point when they dipped under five hundred for the first time and in a very long time it was significant obviously falling out of first place uh, not not that long ago before that was also significant but yeah uh, that's just not something that you see a team usually do when they're going into the final six weeks of the season and looking to make a push and win their division and right now uh, if the Padres continue to play terribly the wild card could be up for grabs but you, you look at that and the Mets And any other NL East team uh, that isn't in the division lead will have three or four other teams to to sort through and contend with on that side of things. And we know that that's not a recipe for success. So I don't know. I would be surprised. Anytime there's a win like last night or yesterday afternoon or evening technically um, (laughs) – You'd like to think, okay, maybe that turns it around. Or maybe that gets them just feeling like they're capable of winning games against these good teams again. um, But it's not there for me yet. I think I need them to kind of do what the Braves have been doing, which is just going on a crazy run. I do think the Braves will come down to earth. Um, I don't necessarily buy that. Everything they did at the trade deadline is going to lead to this sustainable just dominance that they're, uh, you know, demonstrating right now. So, right, right. So I, I think the opportunity will be there, but on the Mets side, I, I need to see them when, you know, maybe four or five, six games in a row, or eight to ten, or something right, like that. Right. Um, you know, th- things that they were capable of doing earlier in the year, but also. Francisco Lindor was in the lineup and Jacob DeGrom was taking the ball every fifth or sixth day. Um, uh, Those two mean a lot to what this team does, uh, obviously.
0: Yeah. I mean, so looking at the rest of the schedule, you know, here we are, um, you know, they are about to go to play the Dodgers in Los Angeles for four games, which is not great news. Then they come home, they play the Giants for three more games. That's not great news. Then things lighten up a little bit at the end of the month. They have three against the Nationals. They have, I believe it's four or five against the Marlins. Four against the Marlins. Then five against the Nationals, three against the Marlins. So that, if they're going to make a run, it has to be essentially the last week of August and the first two weeks of September for them to do that. But then they get hit with the Yankees, the Cardinals, the Phillies, the Red Sox, the Brewers, and the Marlins. And then in October, they finish the season out against the Braves. So the good news is they're only playing the Phillies one series. They're only playing the Braves one series. And like I said, there is ground to be made up in the last week of August, first week of September, if if that is if the other teams in the division aren't playing phenomenal baseball the problem right now is the mets have given up their um their spot in the driver's seat you know if you're in first place you somewhat control your own destiny i know that phrase is kind of bullshit but you understand what i'm saying you you only have to keep performing at your level and make sure that no one else is coming up to your level now you have to piggy you have to jump over teams the leapfrog teams and that's a lot harder um you know i will feel better with Lindor back. I'll feel better with Baez back. I'll feel better if DeGrom comes back. I'll feel better if Syndergaard comes back. But I don't think you can really rely on any of those four players as part of the plans for the rest of the season. I think you have to hope and wish that those players come back and, you know, to make come a point where we are right about to welcome them back, and then you can start penciling them in for plans. But right now, until they're on the field, I, I am really not confident that any of this is going to be – that we're, we're going to get any relief from players that aren't on the team right now. Um, is there one player for you – and I think I know the answer to this, and I think his name rhymes with Mancisco Pindor – that if, if, if this player comes back, you'll – It'll give you the most confidence for the team going forward. Is Lindor that guy for you? Or is it DeGrom? And the, and I just want to preface this. The only reason it's not DeGrom for me is just I don't have any confidence of DeGrom coming back. So, Right.
1: Yeah. No, I, and it, it, that's a good question. And, yeah, I think that is – you got my answer correct. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's sort of a different answer. For winning the division, I think it's Lindor. For being able to do anything in the playoffs, I think it's DeGrom
0: fair okay yeah that's
1: fair. um and look it, it, that's no disrespect to uh you know Cindergard or anybody else um i you know i think i think there are a variety of players out there who could potentially um come back and, and make some difference uh you know even i think we mentioned his name on the show a couple you no know, geez a few weeks ago uh, but like Jose Martinez, not somebody any of us are thinking about, right? Really, but you know, started a rehab assignment and is you know somebody who could uh, potentially return and and add a little offense to a team that's been lacking it. Uh, you know, so there there are guys out there. You know, he's not going to come back and save the season, I don't think. But <laughs> but but they've had so many guys miss time that uh, that there are a lot of potential contributors. But yeah, I, I think if if i were sitting in the uh the manager's chair or the front office or whatever you know I'd, I'd be looking at it sort of like this all depends on if lindor is back soon maybe we can pull off the division and if not um you know that's probably it but if he if he does come back and if Baez is uh capable of, of returning fairly soon too then Hey, we can make a run. We can we can get there, and then all of the focus is on doing everything you can to get to Grom to a spot that he could pitch. Uh, you know, maybe a game in the last week of the season, and then be available uh, for for playoff appearances if they're so fortunate. So, yeah. yeah, I I think that makes a ton of sense.
0: I and also that, that's think... how they
1: treated the deadline too. Basically, it was like, well, if our guys aren't healthy, we're not going to be good.
0: <laughs> right right um i was i was hanging out with uh a cubs fan friend of mine the other night playing some music and he said that you know that Baez was his favorite player on the cubs and he was really sad to see him go and i was like well you, if i were gm you would have still kept them so you know no offense to Baez, i just the more i look at the the plan from the from the standpoint of helping the team win the division, I, I don't think that they made the right moves. The, the further I get from it, um, I don't think that Baez necessarily moves the needle. And I, I'm not even saying this because he is on the IL. I just feel like the the bullpen is such a question mark right now. If they had fortified the bullpen, if they had picked up another starter, and look, Trevor Williams has been fine so far for them, right? That's, that's, Good for that guy. But if they had bolstered the pitching staff more, I think they'd be in a much better position right now. Um, because with the team not hitting, they just they just really need to limit the amount of runs that they're giving up. And I don't have a ton of confidence in them doing that. So that's yeah. okay. Uh, what also sucks along with the Mets is the social media presence of their owner. Um, you had alerted me to this yesterday. I was, as you put it, blissfully offline for yesterday morning which meant i was just sorry <laughs> doing something with, with my kids and uh i had some like actual real life work to do so i wasn't paying attention but steve cohen i i want to find the exact tweet you don't have the exact tweet there do you
1: uh i i could though
0: i i have it right here okay he said oh, go for it yes quote <laughs> It's hard to understand how professional hitters can be this unproductive. The best teams have a more disciplined approach. The slugging and OPS numbers don't lie. Now, that is the type of comment that I think baseball fans around the world make all the time when watching the game with their friends at a bar, or at your house, or, you know, on a podcast. It's a very different thing for an owner who has never played professional baseball to say in public about the people he is paying to play to play professional baseball. I, I'm sort of shocked at the tone deafness of this comment. Um, and look, Steve Cohen's a guy who, you know, he likes to be on Twitter and that is both, you know, great and terrible in equal measure at times but this seems like just a really 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 bad look for the owner um our friend linda Serovich is the first reply when i look at this and she said you know you hired the front office to put this team together right and like to me that is the ultimate point of this is that even if he wants to to you know be a sports talk radio caller and make these kind of claims even if he wants to light a fire under his team, which I've seen a lot of people talk about, which no offense, fuck you if you think that Cohen needs to be calling out his players in public to uh, to fire them up, that's not what an owner should do. But even if even if you do believe that, which I'm vehemently against, it's ultimately his fault here. Whether, it's, right. whether he made the actual decisions to sign on the dotted line for certain things or what, he hired the people who felt that this was an approach that should be taken. If he had concerns at the deadline, he should have gone to his baseball operations staff and said, my, my checkbook is open, make us win. He didn't do that. Or if he did that, they didn't listen to him, which means they shouldn't be working for him, which means he should be blaming them and not blaming the players. It's just, I... I Look, he's not a Will and therefore he still gets credit from me, but this is a really disheartening thing that Cohen has done.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the irony of talking about a more disciplined approach while writing that tweet is, it's, uh, yes, it's not lost on me. And I don't know. I mean, I, obviously, uh, he has a lot more potential here than the Will did because. Whether it was legitimately the lack uh, an in, inability to spend more money on the roster and trying to win, or an unwillingness, um, either way, it was not happening under them. And clearly, there's an advantage in having that sort of a, a budget. Where look, the you know the Red Sox, Yankees, Dodgers they they're not all great teams every single year but on average they're pretty damn good you know yeah <laughs> so so yeah that it is not entirely the same reality as uh, as the the previous one but uh, you know people widely pointed this out this is basically what like fred wilpon would have done in the post or the daily news or whatever um but he's just doing it himself on on twitter and I get that these players are all, you know, public figures in, in a sense. They're, you know, they're they're out there. Most of them are making great money playing baseball. I, I you know I get that it's a different thing than uh, if an average person's boss or CEO went out there and you know called them out. I, I know it's not an exact parallel to that, but um, it, it just comes off as amateur hour and. I also don't want to just totally take uh, the thoughts uh, throughout baseball at face value on, you know, Ken Rosenthal has written a few times um, about reactions throughout the game to Steve Cohen's social media presence. And, uh, you know, I think he's ruffled some feathers in the sense that he's not just a, a silent owner who I, I feel like the approach, uh, in the game is that what the Pond way was the correct way. If you wanted to throw your players under the bus, you know, you, you, you did it in private to a reporter <laughs> and then they did the talking for you. Um, so I, I don't want to just say that like those reactions are all totally warranted either, but, um, but yeah, I think there are some lessons that'll need to be learned about how to navigate that sort of thing. And, and yesterday was certainly not an example of that. And especially when one of the more notable tweets that he had sent out was in July about like waiting for the best value at the trade deadline and not improving his team sooner. Right. You you can't, I I don't know to me you, you can't say that and then only make one trade that was okay. Um, in isolation, it was a, it was a totally fine trade. Um, but do nothing else and then come back and, and frame it the way that you, you are now. Right. Um, if anything, you could bring up the same topic and, and say that, look, these, these guys are, uh, you know, they're trying their hardest. Uh, they're, they're doing everything they can on the, on the front office and coaching side and. Just trying to get back. We know these guys are better hitters than their twenty twenty one numbers, or at least we strongly suspect they are because they always were, and all right. of them are have fallen into this. Uh, yeah, it's not it's not even a slump at this point. But nope, that's not the way it was presented. And then, the, and he knows that he is beloved. So the the you know knee jerk reaction from the average fan, I think, was. Damn right, yep. These guys, they they suck. They, you know, especially fans who might be more inclined to boo or, I don't know, whatever. I just feel like he's established this thing where people think he's their friend, and he is not. No,
0: he's not your friend. Um, the defector who has uh, baseball writer Ray Ratto who writes. Opinion pieces almost every day for The Defector. I uh, wrote a piece this morning, and the tweet from Defector says, it's good to see that New York Mets owner Steve Cohen is ahead of schedule on his predestined journey from team savior to reviled billionaire bastard. And I feel like that's a pretty good uh, headline for this uh, this move. Um, it, it's just a bad look, and it seems like it's a... This seemed totally avoidable. You know, there are things in life that... You can't plan for injuries in baseball. You can't plan for, you know, the the your right fielder who was an MVP-level hitter suddenly not able to hit a lick. You can't prepare for those things. You can prepare as an owner for your public statements. This is not a hot mic. Some of them put a mic in your face at dinner and say, Steve, what's wrong with the team right now? He composed this tweet, looked at it, and said, I can send that out and then hit it. I have no sympathy For him getting you know run over run through the ringer for this um i think it's absolutely justified in in other tweet news uh marcus stroman tweeted that tim healy should have been punched in the face by jason vargas retweeted but yes (laughs) retweeted yes i'm sorry um So let's try to briefly summarize this. Healy had tweeted Strowman's line for the night and then sort of threw in a snarky comment that like five minutes after the game, he was tweeting out videos of his personal highlights. And I understand from a conceptual standpoint why... We want our ball players to be totally selfless members of the team, that they are 126th of a puzzle, and that all they care about is winning the game because that's what the team does together. And I think it's going to be a... Uh, it's going to be a long time before people are willing to accept that that athletes are essentially independent contractors who are always shopping for their next gig. So I totally understand why Strowman would tweet out those highlights. Should he have waited a little bit longer? That's a conversation that I guess we can have maybe, sort of, kind of. I don't know. The bigger issue here to me is that Strowman retweeting something about the Mickey Calloway, Jason Vargas, Tim Healy situation from a couple of years ago Look, even if you think that Tim Kealy is an asshole, and, and you're within your right to think that a beat writer is not a good guy or you don't like his writing or whatever that the case may be, even if you believe that, the actions that were taken on behalf of the Mets, whether it's Callaway's reaction, Vargas's reaction, Callaway's non-apology, and then coming back out and making a second non-apology, like all of that is really, really not cool and should never be the norm or accepted as as part of professional baseball. And so by Stroman retweeting that, I know it was probably said in jest. I know he probably isn't really mad at Healy. It, it, it's just, it's not on the level of Cohen's bad look. I just think that a professional baseball player should want his clubhouse to be a, a safe place from getting decked or 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 from a, a reporter getting decked, you know. So, do, do you care about what Strowman retweeted or, or is this just me being uh, you know, clutching my pearls like the old person I am?
1: <laughs> no, I think I think that part was definitely not um, not a good look. Uh, as, as much as I'm sure a lot of people got to laugh out of it, you know. Uh, but he yeah, he he could just Stick to. He retweeted a bunch of other stuff that didn't, you know, include that uh, on the same topic of, you know, basically dunking on Healy for his snarky way, as he said, of of sharing that information. Um, you know, I saw he retweeted Drew Smith tweeted something about that that was, you know, not threatening violence. <laughs> so yeah, that that part definitely could have held off on um and yeah i don't know and there is also just sort of a like stooping to the level of of someone right so healy's tweet was nonsense and i think having him spend that much energy and i know it's not you know physically that much but there were retweets for a while, and then I think again, in, either this morning or late last night, you know. So like, you're letting them kind of get under your skin, and or, or whatever. And uh, I don't know. You could you could maybe dunk on them once and then move on. It's just I don't know. Not that big of a deal.
0: Yeah, it, it's it's just a weird, unfortunate. It was, it was a very
1: strange day for Mets Twitter, and that is <laughs> saying something. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it
0: is. Um, all right. Is, is there any other sort of Mets uh, miscellany you think we have to get to before moving into our music picks?
1: Um, not in particular. I'm just curious to see who the probable starters are for this weekend. Oh, I, that's an excellent question. This 10 10 game. Ugh, if I'm awake for like the third inning, I'll be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who knows? Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah, right. The Dodgers are going with the bullpen game in the first game of the series. The Mets have Walker, Carrasco, Hill, Stroman. And the Dodgers have bullpen, Bueller, Scherzer, David Price. Um, I don't know. Crazier things have happened. It's possible that they take that win from yesterday and, and go into this and you know maybe start the series off with a win and, and maybe get some luck that the Braves lose a game and things start moving in the right direction. But, uh, it's not even about that. Cause the funny thing is coming into all this for me, it wasn't like, Oh no, the Dodgers and giants for two weeks straight. Obviously that is challenging. Uh, but I, I, usually hate that kind of mindset with baseball because you, you just don't know. Sometimes the Marlins beat the Dodgers, you, you know, like right. weird, weird things happen. You can't go with, Oh, it's a foregone conclusion. And then the Mets, start the stretch 0-5, and and it's like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) that's not great. So they're at a point now where they they really have nothing to lose. They already lost what they had for the vast majority of the season. So uh, I just hope they go into this series feeling a little bit looser, um, and and maybe they can do something to surprise us. I'm not betting on it, um, but, yeah, that that is my ever – so, slight little bit of Mets optimism for the upcoming series. <laughs> I,
0: I appreciate that optimism. Uh, I, I kind of feel the same way, especially with a bullpen game tonight. You can possibly, you know, jump out to a, a decent lead. And then, you know, the Mets starting pitching hasn't been terrible. It, they just, it's this simple. They have to hit, and they're not hitting. And I think we're going to have to have – we had a little bit of the conversation last week – But I think we're going to have to have a pretty serious conversation once the season's over about Michael Conforto and what we think he is and Mm -hmm. what we think the team is going to do with him because at this point, I honestly have no idea. Yeah. Yeah, same here. It's bizarre. Yeah, I I, I did a, uh, a radio appearance this week. Um and they had basically asked what happened to Michael Conforto, and I said, literally no one knows. <laughs> it, yeah. It's it's truly, truly shocking. Um so yeah, who knows? Anyway. Anyway, what I do know is that you probably have a pretty good record for your music recommendation. So what are you uh what are you recommending us this week?
1: So kind of out of nowhere, a couple of weeks ago, Ty Siegel dropped a new record called Harmonizer. And um it it's it's pretty good. Um it's it's unique. It's I guess it it fits into his most recent release before that one, uh as as himself. You know, he's he's uh he's in other bands and, and that kind of stuff. But yeah, uh it's it's cool. It's not like my favorite Ty Siegel record ever, but it it's got a good unique uh sort of cohesive feel to it as an album uh his wife sings on one of the songs and that is cool because she's like his uh you know she she helps run the show when he tours um, she is in the merch booth you know uh, like there she's she's a part of the whole operation so it's cool to hear her on you know on one of the songs on this record um, and I think it's definitely a product of the last year and a half. Um, just the time that they have probably spent it at home. You know, he hasn't really done a whole lot. He has some shows coming up with uh, vaccine only, vaccinated only policy in place. That's the only way in. Uh, obviously, I fully support that. So it, it's, um, Yeah. It's a cool record, and I, I will say that uh, coming in October, not Ty Siegel, but Parquet Courts dropped the single from their upcoming record, and based on that, I have a feeling that that might end up being a, a <laughs> an, an album pick uh, on this show, maybe as the Metzer in the NLCS. Um, who knows?
0: Well, that would, that would be a truly wonderful thing to happen. On both counts, I, I could use a new Parquet Courts record as well. Um, so a couple of weeks ago I had recommended an album by a, a jazz group called Hasidic New wave that had they had met um the downtown New York scene and they were sort of mixing like uh traditional Jewish music with sort of free jazz and i am gonna pick something that's, that's similar to that this week but is much older so in 1960 I think it was three. A uh, saxophonist clarinetist named Joe Maneri had recorded a demo session for Atlantic Records that did not get released until 1998. And uh, Maneri is a is a composer, and he was he's a very very well respected, or was he's he's now passed. He was very well respected jazz teacher, both in terms of composition and in terms of playing. And the album is called Panoids Nine. I think I'm pronouncing Panoids correctly. P A N I O T S. Panoit's Nine, and it's uh, it's full of like really interesting um, time signatures. It kind of blends into that Middle Eastern kind of um, you know Arabic sounding scales at points. Um, I heard the song. the The title track is featured in the movie American Splendor about cartoonist. Uh, um, ha- ha- oh God, I'm blanking on his name. Harvey P. Carr. God. Yes. Every every part of me wants to punch myself in the face for not having the name Harvey P. Carr at the top of my brain because I love his work. But uh, it it featured over the opening credits of that film, and as I saw the film in the theater, I was like, oh, I, I need to find this song. It's really great, so I actually bought the American Splendor soundtrack to get that song. And then you know, this is back in the days when if you wanted to know what a song was, you had to buy an album to get it. And I since um have picked up this this CD. I wish it was available on vinyl. It, it's the original recordings are made from a reel-to-reel tape player, so it does not sound like digital, crystal clear, and so it would sound great on vinyl. It, it would really, really fit on a vinyl release, but it's only on CD right now. Um, but this band uh, used to play weddings, used to play clubs, and it, it it's very loose and very cool. And the last song on it is just a piano and saxophone composition, or performance, rather. It's, it's listed as Jewish Concert. And it turns out that there was a, a, a concert of Jewish music played at the New England Conservatory of Music in 1981. So almost 20 years after the first seven tracks were recorded, there's a live track on there. But it's really, really good, too. I, I can't recommend this enough. It's if, if you like jazz at all, I think it's very different jazz. I think it's a very unique sounding record and very ahead of its time. It, it kind of it kind of hints at things like um like the Hasidic New Wave album I picked from, you know, 30 years later. So uh Panoit's nine by Joe Maneri is my pick for this week. And uh as always, we thank you guys for listening. We hope that the Mets are better for you and for us over this next week. If they are, you can read all about it at AmazonAvenue.com. You can go to uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music to find this podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe while you're there. You can follow Amazon Avenue on social media at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at AmazonAvenue. Avenue. You can find Chris on Twitter at Chris McShane. I'm at Brian needs a nap. And until next time, let's go Mets.